Hello, and welcome to Small Business Happy Hour, a podcast where we interview a different entrepreneur or small business owner every week to hear their story. We chat about their business, passions, struggles, and all things small business. Oh, and we drink with our guests during the interview, hence the happy hour. I'm your host, Derek, founder of Yoga for All Humans, a fully online yoga studio. And I'm your host, Holly, creator of the blog, The Bitter Lemon, and author of many books. We are so happy you're here. Hi, Holly. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Never going to be able to do it and not laugh, huh? I really was going to try not to laugh that time. That's okay. And I even snorted. How are you? (laughs) Doing pretty good. Um, I do feel, I do feel a little like anxious lately just because I feel like I have a lot on my plate yeah nothing nothing bad or anything just busy and like I tend to like just freak out when when it's like that just because I'm like oh my gosh I can't because I I feel like I haven't been sleeping that well lately and I think that that's why because it's like I feel guilty when I lay down because I'm like oh I should be doing all these things but obviously rest is vital but you know how it is Uh Yeah, I feel like the time between, like, with the transition to fall, I feel like is always really busy because, Mm -hmm. like, you know, at work, the summer, you're expected to have people out on vacation a lot, right? And so, like, the time between, I guess, basically Labor Day to Thanksgiving is always really busy because we all know that after Thanksgiving, you can't really get a lot done until the new year, right? Right, right, right. But I feel like this is just a time of the year where shit just gets kind of crazy, you know? Yeah, I also think it's like, obviously, if you're in school or whatever, fall is a back-to-school time. But, I mean, for those of us who are not in school or, or don't have children, there's still this sense of, like, I know for me personally – there was a bit of a push like with my writers group of like, okay, whatever goals we set January 1st, we got three months to make them happen. So it's like all of us have made commitments to write certain things. And which is nice because I'm like, I do feel like with my job hunt, like the first half of the year was really tough to be creative, like in my writing. And so now I'm like, okay, I feel like I have a second chance. Like I I can at least get something done before the end of the year. But now I feel like, oh my God, I need to calm down. Yeah, no, I feel the same way with like getting in front of new yoga clients, you know, cause I'm like, like, this is the time that you start getting in front of people if they need to start budgeting for the new year, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to get new clients at the end of the year. But if you start reaching out to them, you know, in like Q4, then they can start planning for the new year. Um, So I've been trying to focus on top of everything to do outreach at least a few times a week with businesses for our yoga work program and then also apartments for a residential program, which mm-hmm. apartments have been more responsive. You know, mm-hmm. businesses are really hard. And I get it. Like at a business, you get a lot of solicitations. I don't know how much solicitations apartments get, but 
I've been, you know, in corporate America for over a decade at this point, and I probably get, I would say between like one and three solicitations a day, honestly, to like my work email and on LinkedIn. It's kind of crazy because I've been trying to connect with a lot of apartments on Indeed, not on Indeed. Good Lord. See, that's how, that's where my mind is these days with work. (laughs) It's all getting twisted on Instagram. I can, I've been connecting with a lot of apartments on Instagram and I've had some conversations um, that seems to be more responsive and we have a new client next week. I'm excited about a new apartment in Austin. It's called the Shoal. Sounds fancy. We're going to do yoga on their sky deck. Hopefully it's Is it downtown? Yeah. Oh, Wow. Yeah, That's great. it looks like one of the fancy apartments. Um, there's a lot of ritzy apartments around here. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm teaching there next Wednesday. So they're getting all those, uh, all the people from California that have moved right to to Texas and have money to spare. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They need their rooftop yoga. There you go. Yeah. So um, I'm teaching there next Wednesday and hopefully that turns into a new weekly client. So Wow. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Last week on Instagram, I posted that I was just sort of, um, I didn't say I wasn't going to post stories anymore, but I did say, I just feel like um, it's not really worth it to me. There's no ROI. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And it was actually so interesting what happened because, you know, I, I, I don't know if I cannot be the only person, but I feel like over the years of having Instagram, I was a latecomer to Instagram. I feel like when it came out, I was just, I, I used Snapchat, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't know if Instagram is for me, but when I did get it, it was still like the original Instagram where you posted like not you posted whatever they weren't necessarily beautiful looking pictures. They, it yeah. wasn't like selfies. It was like the Insta gram, you know, there were no stories. And then when they released the story feature, I did not use them for probably a year or so. Like I had never posted one story. I was like, I don't, I feel like they took that idea from Snapchat and I'm not into it. And then it was like, Oh, if you don't post stories like people are never going to see your stuff Mm -hmm. so I started posting you know which I feel like over the years of having Instagram I've like gone through this like mental journey of like what am I posting for am I am I really posting it am I posting it to attract people am I posting it to get people to go to my blog am I posting it for myself and I feel like generally speaking, a majority of the stuff I post for myself, my, my blog and my Instagram, I love going back and seeing the pictures and the the captions I wrote. And like, I like seeing the stories of like, you know, Blanche over the years and vacations and things like that. But I, I feel like as of late, I was starting to feel like, you know, I'm, I feel like I share a good bit of my life and a decent amount of people look at the stories, but not a single person actually does anything. Like, I don't care if you don't really click on my link or whatever, like I'm not there to make money or whatever. But if you don't ever like heart 
the thing or you don't ever message me and be like, oh, that's cool. Or like, I'm just like, what is the point? Like for both of us, for for anybody, like why are people using Instagram and why am I posting on it kind of thing? And I felt like I was getting almost to like a, just a place of like negativity where it was just starting to piss me off because I'm just like, how are you know, I don't know how many people are on Instagram, millions, if not billions, I guess. We're all on here just passing the time by like mindlessly looking at each other's lives. Like, I just find that very sad. And, you know, I don't interact with everybody that I follow. I follow like a lot of like celebrities and like pop culture news outlets. But if I am following somebody, even if it is a celebrity and they post something I like, I will write, write them, even if I don't think they'll ever see it and be like, Oh my God, that's so cool. Or like that. I'm, I'm glad you posted that or whatever. Like I still thought that social media was like a place to genuinely connect with people. And it's interesting because when I finally decided like, you know what, Um, I will probably post occasional story if I really want to, but I'm just going to focus on the, I have, you know, we, I manage the account for the podcast and I have an account for my Etsy shop. And it's like, I'd rather just put that energy in those places or anywhere else, literally. But when I post, I posted something, I didn't think it was me or anything. I just said, you know, given that no one ever responds to any, anything I say, um, I think I'm going to, you know, just, just head on out. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and it's so funny because literally two people over a hundred people, it was more people saw that it was almost four times the amount of people saw that than saw my regular post, like my regular stories. Like usually it's between, I have a, a little over 700 followers and I think a normal story would get like 40 to 60 views. This one got over 150 views and two people messaged me about it. One person said, sorry, you feel that way. The other person said, where are you expecting to find actual engagement? I wonder why that story got so many more views. Do you think people were like, go look at Holly's story? Well, that's the other thing is like, is Instagram have, you know, AI out here reading what right, I typed? Right, there? maybe. I kind of wouldn't be shocked. Um, yeah, we need to ask. Katie did social <laughs> social marketing. Yeah. Um, she was yeah, like, it's like most people saw it. And those are the two. And it's like, okay, th- that is a perfect example of why I'm not participating in this anymore. Because I did not say anything offensive about society that we're all I'm not even going to say what I'm sitting here thinking because it's mean but it's like we're all essentially if you're not on here to connect or increase your business or whatever you're doing Instagram for then we're literally wasting so much time yeah giving content to a platform we do not own we could all wake up tomorrow Instagram is gone and all of our stuff is gone mm-hmm. and then it's like to have two people message me with that. Sorry, you feel that way, which it's like, okay, well, is that offensive to you that like, I'm not going to be posting stories because I don't understand how that is a thing. And then where do you expect to find genuine connections elsewhere? Like 
that is pathetic that we're sitting here going, well, our only option for human interaction is on Instagram and you're choosing not to do that now. So good luck. Right. Like that just blows my mind. I'm like, I don't like, you know, I feel like we've been in a generation where we've always had something like, I don't know if you used like AOL messenger, but I use that all the time. Obviously. I would be so manipulative with my (laughs) away message. Like I would put stuff making people think I was going out all weekend when I was not. Um, So like, manipulative messaging for myspace snapchat whatever is your thing it's like trust me like i get it but i also there's a part of me that's like you know we all just put i mean you know you choose to put out there what you put out there but i there is just a part of me that like i don't like that people can see yeah it's not my full day and i'm not going on there sharing my innermost thoughts but I don't like that people can generally keep up with me without having to put in any effort. Yeah. It is a very weird phenomenon. Like it's weird. And I struggle with that too. I'm like, I've never, I've never been very good at being consistent with stories. It's not that I haven't wanted to share stories like you do. It's just, I'm not good at being consistent with that kind of stuff. Um, but I felt that way as well. Sometimes I'll share actual things and like not get many responses, even though there's a lot of clicks and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, this just feels weird. Yeah. And it's like on my, I think it just has to do with the audience. Like, have you ever heard how, I forget what it's called, but like there's, uh, I think there's like a scientific name for if you are using an app for dating, like the whole like swipe culture like it yeah. does something to your brain where it's like people on demand. And I kind of wonder if, if the audience on Instagram has that same mentality because with my blog, I get so much more, not only visits to my blog, I have so much more followers and blog readers and subscribers, but I also get more commenters. I get, you know, people click through to my Etsy shop. I think like 60% of my Etsy shop traffic is directly from my blog. And then with my newsletter, my newsletter only has about 150 people, but they email me directly. Almost every Friday, I get emails commenting on what I talked about in my newsletter that week, or people. those people were following my job search journey really closely, emailing me, encouraging me. So I think it's just where your audience is at. And like, maybe people are more inclined to respond to a blog or an email uh, than they are to Instagram. I don't know, but it's interesting because I haven't posted, I've, I've just reposted stuff from like the other two accounts that I have and haven't posted like anything personal. And it's like, I don't feel like any less of a person. I actually feel a little better. Cause I'm like, people aren't getting like a window into my everyday life and then not responding to me. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It is such a weird thing. And I feel like if you have anybody in your life that doesn't use social media, if you talk to them about this kind of stuff, it sounds so dumb. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's like, wow, big deal. You're not posting stories. Like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it is weird. It's just, it's just of the time, though. Like you mentioned MySpace. Like, remember how important the top eight was? Like, 
you know yes. <laughs> that's sort of a lot of fights and, it, and it's just it's just the modern age and we're all just kind of trying to figure it out and just trying to figure out where to put our energy you know and yeah there you go i mean we have too much going on to waste our time on something that doesn't serve us so yeah that's for sure yeah but speaking of serving, that was a terrible segue, but our guest this week is amazing. Yeah. Um, we just left that conversation a little bit ago, just like, I don't even know the right adjective for it. Flabbergasted? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a really long time, honestly, because... Obviously, I think in all these conversations, I mean, this will be episode 27. That sounds right. So, you know, we've we've met a, a range of people. And I mean, to some extent, you're finding your way into being a small business owner for one reason or another. Like you're meant to do what it is that you're doing for various reasons. But I think um, our guest this week is Ian Blessing from all the bitter, which him and his wife not only came up with this concept, but they also run the company completely themselves, which is nuts given how much it's grown. It just seems like everything came together for them. I mean, not necessarily in a smooth way, but it's like, these are the two people that were created to make this business. And given like why they're making it, the, the, uh, the causes that it benefits, the people that they're serving, like it's just like wow this is i can't it's like everything just interlocks so perfectly and i just think about like all those episodes of shark tank that you watch where it's like mm -hmm. some people yeah they have a really good business idea they've done all their research they have the funding whatever but then you meet somebody like ian and it's like they didn't necessarily have that they just had this idea and like it worked and like now it's really working and it's mm -hmm. like well it's just it just clicks it was meant to be totally yeah no it really was um it was a fascinating conversation it was very educational but in a way that was very enthralling like i was just in it the whole time like i don't think ian gives himself enough credit for what they're doing <laughs> <laughs> and to convince Ian, he is a scientist, so let that sink in, Ian. Um, but no, it's just it's it's fascinating what they're doing. Um, I kind of mentioned toward the end of the episode that you know having non-alcoholic, I guess, focus is important for me because obviously I'm a big wino, but you know my brother is a recovering alcoholic sober ten years, and it's important for people to have options like Ian kind of mentioned at one point, it's kind of a slippery slope. Like, you know, you, you have to play it by ear as a recovering alcoholic, whether you can reintroduce, you know, a non-alcoholic beverage, like a, a mocktail um, mm -hmm. in your life, because that could lead to wanting the cocktail. Right. So to each their own, but it's just nice to have, nice to have options. And I was fascinated by the, conversation around bitters 
having alcohol in them. So like if you get a non-alcoholic drink, it may not be truly non-alcoholics. It was just like so, so jam-packed full of information, but just such an interesting story and an interesting conversation. I think the other thing that we or I didn't get to mention in our conversation with Ian was I know me personally, I mean, I've gone on different journeys with alcohol. I think, you know, I went to college in Louisiana. I remember specifically like when I told my dad that I got accepted to LSU, that was when LSU was the number one party school. And my dad was like, (laughs) I don't know about this. I definitely drank my fair share in college, but I mean, you know, like in Louisiana, like drinking is a way of life. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I know once I left, I lived in Louisiana for 12 years, including my time in college. And then when I moved to Austin and really didn't know anybody here. So I wasn't like hanging out with that same group of friends Uh, you know, my drinking and my outlook on drinking definitely changed just because I was like, whoa, I didn't even realize, uh, how much I was drinking um, and what, you know, my life kind of revolved around it in some sense. And then I like got, you know, back into it. And then my, when my dad passed, um, drinking was something that I slowly stopped doing for, uh, almost two years because I was pretty terrified. Like, Oh, if I get drunk, I could either feel really good or I could have a mental breakdown. And then during the pandemic, I started getting like my wine subscription and I still love, uh, love that. Um, but right now I'm not drinking on a quote unquote school nights. Um, <laughs> to try and help with my sleep. So it's like, I feel like no matter where you're at, you know, on that, that spectrum, like it's going to change, whether it's for health reasons or mental health reasons or or for diet or whatever, like maybe it's, you know, financial, I have no idea. Like it's whatever. So I find it really like we're in such a interesting time where there are so many options to have a delicious drink and have that ritual like Ian talked about, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to, you know, kind of suffer the consequences. Um, It's interesting because I think more people are now seeing like the, you know, alcohol is so accepted in our society that it's like, no one ever talks about like, you know, those old commercials, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's now all these studies out there. Like this is your brain on alcohol. And it's like, you know, there's various angles of it, but that was something like at my day job, some, we got into a conversation about how there are other people that I work with that don't drink during the week also. And they're like, yeah, have you ever seen like just what your brain looks after one, one drink or whatever. And so I think people are having all sorts of reasons to just seek alternatives. Um, and it's cool that there's actually like good options available. So. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned, like, this is what your brain looks like on drugs, because that's what pisses me off about, like, marijuana. You know, like, I feel like alcohol isn't treated as seriously as a drug, but it is a drug, you know, Mm -hmm. and it should be treated that seriously. But because it's been, you know, normalized by society, like, people are like, people act like it's a no brainer that marijuana is illegal. If marijuana is legal, why is it alcohol? Like, marijuana shouldn't be illegal, but that's a conversation for a different day. Um, I just think it's funny because alcohol is the only thing that if you say, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, 
everyone loses their mind. Right. Yeah. Like, whereas if you're like, oh, I'm not, you know, are are we all out here being like, oh, I'm not doing coke tonight. Right. I'm not going to take that line. They're like, oh, okay, right. no deal. <laughs> well, if you're not having a drink, everyone's like, oh my God, you're either pregnant or you're super sick. And it's like, right. oh, maybe I have an early morning meeting. Maybe I want right. to get a good sleep. Maybe I don't want the calories. I don't know. But I just think that is so funny that that's how normalized it is. That when someone says, I'm not drinking, people are like, why? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. So. Well, y'all enjoy. It's a fantastic episode. Maybe one of my favorites. Uh, I'm yeah. to favorites, but it's it's a really good one. Information packed. Um, he's not going to say it himself, but a scientist, chemist, <laughs> Ian Blessing from All the Bitter. <laughs> <laughs> y'all enjoy. Hey, Ian. Hey. How, How are, are you? you? Hi. <laughs> Good, Jinx. How's it going for you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm busy and uh, overwhelmed, but you know, yeah. I think that's probably par for the course. Yeah, no, you're in good company. So yeah. <laughs> we're good. Oh, we're not, okay. Just bitching about our work day, so you're in good yeah. company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you? You guys are both in Texas. Yeah, is it five o'clock your time? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is. Where are you? California, uh, in Chico. It's about an hour and a half north of Sacramento, uh, okay. kind, of, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But wow. uh, nice, nice town. You know, pr- proper sized uh, town, um, but but very much kind of just surrounded by um, by farm country and and not much else. I think that Sacramento is the closest city. San Francisco is like three hours away, and then north of here, like Portland, would be the you know the the biggest city. Um, that sounds lovely. It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's a good spot. Yeah, that's ideal for me. I, I spent a few years in Iowa City, Iowa, which you know we didn't know what we were getting into whenever we moved there because we moved for my husband's job. But like, it was just phenomenal. It was just like this small. I mean, it was a college town, but it was like maybe a population of twenty, twenty-five thousand. Yeah, obviously surrounded by cornfields. Yep. Um, and it was just, it was so quaint and nice. And we were like, we could get used to this. And then his job moved us over here to Austin, which is obviously a cool place to live. Yeah. But we're, we're more small town people. So yeah, no, that, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing here. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks uh, for joining us. I'm Derek. This is Holly. Um, nice Holly, to meet you both officially. Yeah. yeah too. Holly is a customer of yours. So that's, that's, uh, she's the one. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yes, I'm so excited. I have so many questions. Um, but yeah, we need to know what you're drinking. Uh, I am drinking a non-alcoholic IPA from Athletic. Uh, <gasps> that is my favorite. It's a, a West Coast style IPA uh, that makes me ridiculously happy. It very much tastes like the first alcoholic IPA that I ever really loved um, from Sculpin, uh, or not from Sculpin, from Ballast Point in San Diego, called Sculpin. 
Um, and I, I, I hated IPAs before then, or thought I hated IPAs. And my roommate at the time, I moved down to San Diego and he was like, you got to try this beer. And I said, I'm not going to like it. He said, just try it. And I was like, oh my God, this is, no, you're right. This is amazing. Um, and then I went from hating IPAs to only drinking IPAs. And it just kind of, it took that one beer to like make me understand. And it was a trip to, you know, 15 or so years later, like quit drinking and then taste this. And I was like, immediately transported back to, you know, the bar stool that I was sitting in and the, the, you know, fried zucchini tacos that I was eating the first time I tasted that. It was wild. And my, my wife, Carly, the next time we had it, I, t- I told her about that and she made fried zucchini fish tacos, like, like fish tacos, but with fried zucchini, um, with like, you know, load of cabbage and, you know, vinegary, you know, kind of coleslaw and, and made that for us like the next night. And I had the beer again with those tacos and was like, yep, this is exactly, yeah, it was really cool. Oh my gosh. Athletic has been one of the companies that I've kind of leaned on as I turn to non-alcoholic beverages during the week. And I, I think I bought five or six different ones off their website just to try. And there has not been one I don't like so far. <laughs> yeah, they're all good. And they're, they're fun because they have an amazing core lineup that you can order anytime. But then, you know, you go on the website and, and any given month and they've got three, four, you know, very like limited release flavors um, that are almost always going to be good. And so it's a really nice way to kind of switch things up and you can kind of never you could just drink athletic and never really get bored because they're all good and they do every style really well. And there's always, you know, some kind of special limited pilot release. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I made the drink where I first tried all the bitter. Um, It's the Mezcal Rita. So it's the Monday Mezcal with the margarita mix and my orange, all the bitter. So very good. This is so good. I'm actually almost out of um, the kit that I got because I drink them at least once a week. Yeah. Well, we'll send you when, when we're done. If you guys can send me your mailing addresses, I'll send you both a set, a full set of. Love it. I can't restock the Monday, but I can restock the bitters. (laughs) I'll restock the Monday. That would be awesome. Thank you. Because we were actually talking, I think maybe it was last week. Yeah, with Aaron about non-alcoholic drinks. Because the jo- the running joke is I always drink red wine. Because that's just what I go to. I used to try to make like fun cocktails and stuff. But I'm just such a red wine now. And I want to get more into non-alcoholic drinks. And like you were talking about the non-alcoholic beer. like And Holly had a non-alcoholic white wine last week that actually tasted like white wine. And mm. I was find a red wine that would be you know actually taste like it because that's half the reason i drank it because i enjoy the taste you yeah. know yeah the wines are really challenging the beers are much easier for a couple of reasons you're only removing five percent alcohol with wine you're removing anywhere from 12 to 15 so you're 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 literally stripping more away from it <clears throat> and with beer, you have the, the benefit of carbonation and hops and any number of other flavorings that might get added to that particular style of beer. You know, if it's a stout, it's got a roasted malt. If it, you know, you could have a passion fruit, you know, sour wheat beer that's obviously got passion fruit puree. So there's other flavors added. There's hops. And, and the big thing is the bubbles, because the, the biggest issue with wine is the texture. It, it lacks body. It lacks the, the same, you know, richness that, that red wine does. 
white wines work slightly better because they're higher acid. They're supposed to be crisp. They're not supposed to be full body. They're supposed to be, you know, kind of piercing in, in texture. So white wines tend to work better overall. They're still not amazing, but overall they're much better. Um, red wines is, it's, it's getting there and it gets better. And there's a couple brands that are better than others. There's a red uh, called Luminara. It's a blend of, I want to say, Pinot and Zinfandel that's surprisingly good. Naughty makes a really good Syrah. Um, there's a couple of other good reds, um, but overall, it's just a different experience. We actually add our bitters to red wine to improve the flavor. There are plenty of reds that have enough texture and body because they're kind of sweet because uh, they have grape juice. They have, you know, red grape juice concentrate basically added back to it. After you remove all the alcohol, you're you're left with a very flat beverage and a very like disjointed kind of unbalanced beverage mm-hmm. because alcohol is so much of it. And so they're, they're kind of out of whack. And you, in, in most cases, you add back some, some literal grape juice to it to give some of that body back. And because when you remove the alcohol, you, 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 we, we have this impression that non-alcoholic red wine is super sweet. And it is partially because they have to add grape juice back to it. They have to add sugar back to it because when you just take the stripped down red wine, it's not sweet. It's totally dry. You, yeah. you, you've taken red wine, which is already dry, and removed the alcohol, which makes it even drier because alcohol – we don't think of it this way, but ethanol has kind of a sweetness to it. You, you, our, our palates get used to it, so you don't taste it as sweet. But if you went from like not drinking for two years to like drinking a glass of wine, like it's going to taste oddly sweet uh, because it gives you that impression, it gives you that mouthfeel, and it gives you this kind of balancing almost almost a, a, a sweet. It's not sugar, but it's almost a sweetness. And so the, the wines are totally out of whack when you remove all that, and then you add grape juice back to it. And so we, long story short add our aromatic bitters to those red wines to cut the sweetness down. So they still, some of those wines will still have that body and that texture, but you're adding then all this spice and earth and bitter notes from our bitters, which then kind of counteracts the grape juicy flavors of the wine and helps get it, you know, kind of closer to something that we see as, as red wine, but it's, it's a challenge one way or the other. That's we, very we cool. Know, like a full lesson because you used to yeah. be a sommelier. Yeah. You are a sommelier. I'm like, look at Derek asking a sommelier about non-alcoholic red wine. <laughs> yeah, we we could do a whole we could do a whole show. It's a, <laughs> yeah, that's, a topic that's near near and dear. <laughs> that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. I was entertained the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> stick to for now. Stick to sparkling wine. Sparkling wine for the yeah. same reasons as beer. Yeah, uh, is is typically much more satisfying. Um, the bubbles give you texture. It's brighter. It's higher acid. It's crisp. It's red wine is just tough. Yeah, that makes sense. the The white wine that I like does have a slight bit of um, effervescence, which is like why I like it so much. Yeah. So it does have that crispness, but that's exactly what we were talking about. Like I was like, uh, as we, it's still super hot where we live, but I'm like, once it finally cools off, I'm going to want a red wine. So I'll be on that journey. <laughs> yeah. Look, look for Luminara lights. Pinot is a German Pinot. They make an amazing Riesling as well. And their Pinot is really okay. good. Uh, and naughty Syrah, all, all, all of those three brands, everything they make, the whites, the reds and the sparklings are all really good. 
Okay, sweet. Yeah. So yeah, I would just love to hear, you know, we obviously, Holly has some background on you and looked at your website and everything. Um, but I would just love to kind of hear how your journey with your career took you to starting all the better. Yeah, it. Um, so my wife and I met, my wife Carly is my my business partner, and we met working as Psalms at the French Laundry. And we drank too much. That was, you know, part of where we bonded was at the bar after work. And that's great, you know, when you don't have kids and, and, and work is your life and, you know, you're working between 12 and 16 hours a day and then you go party after work. And it's, you know, it's, it's very much a, a decompression from, you know, the, the battle of, of restaurant service. But, you know, we drank way too much. Um, call it whatever you want. You know, we're, I, we we would absolutely be classified as having an alcohol use disorder or alcoholic or whatever you want to call it. I don't really like using any of those terms anymore. I just don't identify with it, which is fine. Everybody, you know, it's very personal to, to everybody. I drank too much and I don't anymore. You know, I, that's what works for me. So we met at the French Laundry got married, had kids, and realized pretty quickly into having a newborn that we could not keep drinking the way that we had. Mm-hmm. We both, you know, Carly quit drinking during the pregnancy. I mostly quit, you know, in, in solidarity. Um, and then, you know, Jack popped out and we were like, cool, you know, let's let's go, you know, right back to it. We can keep living this life. We can be the cool parents that go, you know, down the street for margaritas and martinis with the stroller. And then, uh, you know, a couple months in, it was like, that's nah, not really cool. We can't, this isn't, we can't do this. So we both quit drinking together at the same time when our first son was five months old. And very quickly into our sobriety or whatever you want to call it into our not drinking we discovered non-alcoholic beer and wine and spirits and were so so relieved that we could continue to enjoy the flavor and the ritual of mm-hmm. those drinks without the booze you know we we are there's different spectrums right there's people that don't drink too much like Derek, like you just you genuinely enjoy, you know, the flavor of, of red wine. There's people that drink way too much and don't like the flavor of it. They're, they're just, you know, hard, hardcore alcoholics. We were both, you know, we were alcoholics who also really enjoyed the flavor and the ritual and the story and the history and the people and the culture and, you know, everything that goes into making a wine or a spirit or a beer because it was fascinating to us and it was also our job it was our job probably because we were fascinated by it also because we got to drink and call it studying so it all kind of you know goes hand in hand it was all very much wrapped wrapped up in itself and so losing you know all, not only quitting drinking but l- losing that part of our lives where we genuinely enjoyed the flavor and the ritual you know, is, was tough, obviously to, to, to lose all that. That's kind of a, 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 t- a tough blow. So finding these alternatives was a relief. Mm-hmm. And we realized pretty, pretty quickly that there was a massive range of non-alcoholic spirits. I'm looking at our, our home bar that has 75 non-alcoholic spirits on it. And, you know, you could make 
virtually any cocktail that you could think of, whether you're recreating classic cocktails or, you know, making your own, you know, new, new, new drinks and new flavor profiles, you could make basically whatever you wanted. But the one thing that was really lacking in the marketplace were fully alcohol free cocktail bitters. Mm-hmm. And you can use, you know, depending on who you ask, you can use a couple of dashes of alcoholic bitters in an otherwise non-alcoholic cocktail. It's not going to get you drunk, uh, you know, in the same way that a, an NA beer that's 0.5% alcohol is not going to get you drunk. You'd have to drink a hundred of them and it wouldn't, that wouldn't work anyway, because you'd barf. <laughs> and even if you didn't, your body processes it faster than you can get drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple dashes of Angostura in a non-alcoholic cocktail is the same thing. You can't, you know, unless you're going, it, it's 45% alcohol. Let, to, to be clear, alcoholic bitters are highly alcoholic. You can take a couple shots of it and get drunk just like you would anything else. Mm-hmm. But using the small amounts that you do in a cocktail isn't going to get you drunk. It's not going to get you buzzed. But there's plenty of people out there who don't drink for whatever reason, whether it's religious, health, they're in recovery that aren't comfortable with using a couple of dashes of 45% alcohol in their otherwise non-alcoholic old fashioned. And we wanted to be able to offer them an alternative that tasted the same and was modeled after the same, you know, flavor profiles as the classic bitters that you find behind any bar in the same way that you can use these, you know, whiskey, gin, tequila alternatives. We wanted to put out three flavors that mimicked the three most common styles of bitters, which would be Angostura is a is a aromatic bitter um, that's kind of rich and warmly spiced and earthy and, and very bitter and kind of tastes like bark because there's a lot of bark in there. Um, but the, the primary flavor profile is warm spice like cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, allspice. <laughs> Uh, there's a bitter called Peychaud's that is really just used in a couple of classic cocktails. A Sazerac is the the, the big mm-hmm. one, but it's for that reason, a very important cocktail bitter that you'll find behind every bar and is more fruity and, and very anise forward. It smells like licorice and it tastes a bit like cherries mm-hmm. and orange bitters would be the other one. And there's a number of different varieties and they're, they come in, you know, kind of all different styles from, you know, overtly orangey to orange and spice. And so we started with those three flavor profiles so that any bartender could pick up those three bitters and say, okay, I know what these are. I know how to use them. Um, and they really completed, they rounded out the non-alcoholic bar. Uh, and now we're working on additional flavors. Now we get to kind of play around now that we've nailed, you know, the, 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 the standards, we get to play around with some other unique flavors and we get to, you know, create some flavors of our own. Not that our first three aren't our own. They're very unique. They're not, they don't, they're not going to be, nor nor should they be, exact replicas of those three classic bitters, but they're very much inspired by those bitters. Now we get to create our own things. And so we we released a lavender bitter uh, earlier this year uh, that has, it's lavender and chamomile and ashwagandha and a number of other really amazing herbs oh. that are great for, for calm and stress and anxiety. Yeah, We're working on a, a chocolate mole recipe right now. That's really fantastic. Yeah. Fig and walnut is coming up next. Ooh. Do something with sage and eucalyptus and mint. Maybe if it's yeah. any good, we'll see it's still <laughs> just the recipe right now. Um, but now we get to kind of expand and, and play around and, you know, and develop the lineup, which is really fun. That's so, how y'all do these experiments. Sorry, Holly. How do we do it? Or Yeah, like, I mean, I mean it's, it sounds really scientific. 
It's not. It's not at all. Um, I am not a science guy. I'm not a science guy or a math guy or anything, really. I don't know what I do. Um, I like flavor. And I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I learned enough of the, you know, kind of organizational side through managing restaurants um, and, and, you know, through working in kitchens, you know, the importance of kind of you know, tweaking recipes and keeping things standard. So that that's kind of where that that came from. But it's not scientific at all. Um, I just throw a bunch of stuff in a mason jar, essentially. Um, it's obviously a little more involved than that. But basically, the process and how I start development is a, a, a standard mason jar with a mixture of vegetable glycerin, water, and a little bit of vinegar. The vinegar changes depending on the flavor. <laughs> For the most part, we use apple cider vinegar, but the fig and walnut bitters were uh, starting to play with balsamic, uh, and we'll probably play with some other vinegars down the line too. That's the liquid that we use essentially in place of alcohol. So we make our bitters exactly the same way that you would make alcoholic bitters, except that we don't use alcohol. We use that liquid mixture instead. We have to use way more raw ingredients compared to making alcoholic bitters. Not because I'm trying to say our bitters are better than anybody else's because we use more ingredients, but because we have to, because glycerin works as an extractor of flavor, but it doesn't work as well as alcohol does. So we have to physically pack more ingredients into it to get the same level of intensity. They also have to sit for much longer than alcoholic bitters might. Uh, traditional bitters might only take two or three weeks to macerate. Ours take seven to eight weeks, again, to give it enough time to fully pull out all the flavors. But going back, we, we fill up a jar with, with the, the ingredients and the liquid and shake it every day for seven or eight weeks. And, you know, we, we do probably 10 different iterations of whatever flavor we're working on at the same time, because it takes two months. It's not like, you know, you can't just like cook it up in the kitchen and then taste it. It takes like you put it together and you, you, you hope that it's good two months later. So we typically start with about 10 different versions of the same idea, tweaking little things here and there, one ingredient here, one ingredient there. Uh, and then we taste them and we evaluate and we, you know, then kind of do another round from there. We take whatever the, you know, whatever the winner was and then kind of ideate that version 10 more times until we land on whatever the, the final formula is. Um, and that's how we got started. We, we, we did the recipe development in our kitchen at home and then scaled it up into a commercial kitchen into uh, five gallon Cambros at first, a, a store, a food storage container, five gallon Cambros, and then 55 gallon drums. And now we're in 500 liter stainless steel tanks. Wow. Um, so they just kind of keep going up in size, but otherwise the process is essentially the same. We've, we've made some tweaks and some adjustments and improvements uh, here and there, uh, you know, to account for the, the scale, but it's basically made the same way now as it was, you know, in our kitchen in a mason jar. That's awesome. I'm going to say that you are a chemist and I just, pulled <laughs> up, I pulled up the scientific method. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I pulled up the scientific method. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is some scientific method to it. No, there, 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 there is some aspect of it. Yeah, no, you're following. Um, Everything you said follows the scientific method. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I did. You know, the the one thing that I will say is during the pandemic, when you know everybody was making sourdough, we tried to make sourdough and it didn't work out. Um, <laughs> I got really into herbalism. 
Um, and so that's kind of part of where this came from and part of where the idea and, and that, you know, kind of know-how came from. We already had the background in flavor, which was great to be able to kind of put together and assemble and, and recreate, which is a challenge, obviously, recreate, you know, classic cocktail bitters that have been around for, you know, hundreds of years and have been perfected over hundreds of years. I'm not saying we, we came anywhere close to that, but we tried. So the, the, the flavor experience helped. But then the other part that was really important for us was the, the, the functional aspect of it. You know, bitters originated as a, a a daily medicinal tonic they were taken for digestion but also like a hundred other you know they weren't cocktail bitters at the time they were they were medicinal bitters they were taken daily as as medicine that eventually turned into a cocktail ingredient kind of starting with adding bitters to a spirit because it made it taste better uh, kind of the spoonful of sugar idea, you know, you'd add a few dashes of bitters to your brandy, you know, in the morning so you could get your medicine down. And then also, Hey, you know, you get to drink a glass of brandy in the morning and you have an excuse for it. So that's kind of where that started. And it eventually turned into a proper cocktail, which was literally called cocktail. Um, we, we use that word ubiquitously now to refer to any, any mixed drink. Everything is a cocktail now. But a, the original definition in the very early 1800s, a, a cocktail was a mixture of spirit, water, sugar, and bitters. That was it. Those four ingredients were the definition of cocktail. So bitters kind of went from being medicinal, primarily medicinal, to mostly for flavor, mostly as a cocktail ingredient. Mm-hmm. And kind of didn't lose their functional aspect because bitter ingredients are inherently good for you. They trigger receptors in our body that promotes saliva and digestive juices. And basically our body says, you're probably not supposed to eat that. That doesn't taste very good. Let's jumpstart your digestive tract to make sure that everything is fine. That's why bitter flavor, that's why, you know, aperitifs, digestifs are, are, digestifs are bitter because it helps digestion. So cocktail bitters on their own are beneficial, but we've moved away from focusing on the functional aspect and they're functional by default. And they're, they're more now, you know, formulated for flavor. <clears throat> I really liked the idea of the functional aspect, especially because in non-alcoholic cocktails, you're removing the alcohol, right? So like people drink for different reasons. People drink for, we talked about people drink for flavor or they drink to get drunk or they drink for both. So if you're removing the alcohol and you're trying to replace that habit and you don't necessarily like the flavor of whiskey, but you still like the ritual of having your whiskey and Coke, there's this kind of pushback idea of like, so then what's it doing for me? Like I used to get drunk now it's just flavored water, which is to an extent very true. It's tasty, but it's flavored water. So there's a lot of brands of spirits and ready to drink cocktails that are, are you know, marketed as functional beverages. And they include adaptogens and nootropics and all these buzzwords, uh, things like ashwagandha and functional mushrooms and, you know, things that are great for stress or, you know, they're they give you a little pep in your step, you know, whatever it is, there's all these ingredients that work well in adding benefit to the drink. And so, you know, we, we kind of had the same idea. 
with these bitters. If you're making yourself a drink anyway, why wouldn't it be as beneficial as possible, especially because there's already the history there and all the ingredients that you would use or, or could theoretically use to make bitters generally fall into the camp of functional medicine. Yeah. So rather than just flavoring these with flavorings, we really leaned into things like dandelion root, burdock root, milk mm -hmm. thistle seed for your liver, lots of ginger, yellow dock root, fennel, and then adaptogens like holy basil, shisandra berry, ashwagandha, chamomile. So that was, you know, that, that idea and, and kind of that, you know, knowledge came from obsessing over herbs during the pandemic um, when we had nothing else to do. I was, you know, making functional teas and, uh, you know, bottle fermented root beers and, and things like that. And that's kind of where that interest came from for me. That's really cool. That is very cool. That was one of the things I noticed was the health benefits. And that was new information to me. I thought that was fascinating. So I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah. 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 And you answered my question about why bitters are typically alcoholic, which it's interesting because we had a previous guest who was a winemaker and she explained why it's so difficult to make vegan wines. You know, the cheaper, quicker option is to use like animal products that a lot of people have allergens to. So I feel like this may be a running theme. The more more guests we have is like, you know, what is common is maybe the cheaper, quicker option, which isn't always, which may not be the best, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, there, there's two sides to it for, for bitters. <clears throat> Alcohol is cheaper and quicker and, and more effective. Um, ethanol is much cheaper, you know, high, high proof, you know, unflavored ethanol is, is very cheap and it works really well as an extractor of flavor and a preservative. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, all things equal, it is the the much better option to make cocktail bitters with or an extract of any kind. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why we make, you know, the baking extracts are all made with with high, with with alcohol. That's why vanilla extract is 35% alcohol. It works better. It's more shelf stable. But yeah. if you have an aversion to alcohol, then it's not on the table. And so you've got to figure out, you know, something else. You've got to figure out something else to use, which is part of the reason why, you know, we charge $26.50 for a bottle of our bitters. That's at the higher end. It's it's not, you know, it's not out of, uh, it's not outrageous, to be honest, that craft bitters go up to, you know, about $28 a bottle. But when you consider the fact that it takes two to three times as long to make our product and costs two to three times as much to make it because we have to use way more ingredients to get the same level of flavor. We should realistically be charging $50 a bottle, but nobody would buy it. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So it, there's, I think we, we've gotten to this point where, you know, we, we all expect rightfully. So we expect choice, we expect options yeah. and we expect our preferences to be catered to because they should be, you know, just because I don't eat wheat or I don't eat meat or I don't drink alcohol doesn't mean that I should be, you know, confined to a glass of water and a plate of, uh, you know, unseasoned spinach leaves. And that's like my only option, but these alternatives are expensive. They, they're not, they're not cheap to make. They require additional technologies and research and, and ingredients. And, uh, you know, the people, I want to know why non-alcoholic alternatives cost as much as they do. The, you're not paying for the booze. Booze is cheap. You know, you buy a bottle of, of pop-off vodka for $5 
or a bottle of Grey Goose for, you know, whatever, $35, $40, they both get you just as drunk. You're, you're paying for the flavor. You're paying for the product itself. That's why bottles of non-alcoholic spirits cost $30, $35. You're paying for the ingredients and the time that go into it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm curious when, so when you and Carly, you know, decided not to drink, you saw there were no options for these non-alcoholic bitters. What was it first like, okay, let's see if we can make our own. Or was it first thinking, is this something that people are, are looking for? Uh, yeah, it was both. Um, it was equally both. And okay. you know, the, the first question was answered, you know, quickly is is the wrong word it took two months um <laughs> but i threw a bunch of stuff in a jar uh you know i've never made bitters before i i know i i've used bitters in in you know bars and restaurants i understand bitters but i'm, I'm not a bitter aficionado by nature um so i looked up some recipes and i i looked up how to make a, a glycerite which is a, a, an extract with glycerin um mm-hmm. I Googled, how do you make non-alcoholic bitters, basically, uh, and followed the instructions. The first thing that popped up, uh, I threw a bunch of stuff in a jar, um, including some dandelions from our front lawn, because I thought that'd be cool. I don't think that did anything. But it was wild. You know, it was wild. It was like I threw a bunch of weird stuff in a jar. The red so far removed from where we are now. But it worked. You know, two months later, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. This this totally works. This is terrible. But this works. Um, I, I can I can figure this out. So that was the first question was, can I do it? And and it was an immediate yes. You know, I, I, I knew that there was something to it. And it was obviously going to take some work. And it did. It took a year to you know land on those first three recipes. But proving the concept was really easy, was was super, super easy. The other question was really just kind of a leap of faith was, are people going to want this? You know, our, our cocktail bitters are pretty niche to begin with. And alcohol-free cocktail bitters are certainly very niche. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, to our conversation earlier, plenty of people that don't drink are still okay using alcoholic bitters because it's not going to get you drunk. Mm-hmm. But we kind of looked at it from the hospitality perspective where in a restaurant, I would never serve somebody a non-alcoholic cocktail that contained alcoholic bitters unless I had a conversation with them first, unless it was explicitly stated on the menu, you know, underneath the cocktail with an asterisk that says contains alcoholic bitters. Or if somebody was just ordering, I would feel the need as a server to say, just so you know, this cocktail contains Angostura. Is that okay with you? That conversation's super awkward to have like the same thing as telling somebody our veggie burger is cooked in bacon fat you know but it's only one percent bacon fat like it's it's not you're not eating meat you know it's just touching meat it's just a little bit because it makes it taste better like you should be cool with that right no i'm veg- i've been vegetarian for 30 years like i don't eat bacon so yeah. it, that was kind of the perspective that we came at it from and I know that people use alcoholic bitters in their non-alcoholic cocktails in bars and restaurants, or they don't use them at all, which is a, does a disservice to your drinks. It means that your yeah. drinks are lacking in flavor and complexity. And if you are using cocktail bitters, you're putting yourself at a huge risk to upset your guests, to violate somebody's trust, their health, their religious preferences. 
their liver condition, you know, and their, their 20 years of sobriety. And they, for the first time are like going out of their comfort zone and saying, you know, I I've been drinking black coffee for 20 years, but you know what, I'll try a mocktail today. You know, even though they've been told they're not supposed to, cause it's a slippery slope. They're like, you know what, I'm going to be bad today. I'm going to try a non-alcoholic cocktail, which is already like a step for that person. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they find out later that the drink had Angostura in it and they look up it cause they don't even know. Most people aren't even aware that bitters are alcoholic. Yeah. So they yeah. find out later on that Angostura is 45% alcohol and they go, well, I had 20 years sober and I just drank alcohol. I may as well go pound a bottle of whiskey. Is that an extreme example? Maybe, but it's absolutely not outside the realm of possibility. That absolutely does happen. I'm not going to be responsible for that as a server. I'm not going to be responsible for that as a business owner. Um, So I don't know. Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself at that risk? Why would you have that awkward conversation with people? So I think it kind of came down to, you know, we, we saw the writing on the wall. We saw the direction this movement is going. And we know that bars and restaurants are all going to have a non-alc program within the next few years in the same way that Starbucks has uh, impossible sausage patty for breakfast and, and Del Taco has, you know, a impossible ground beef burritos. Those options are everywhere at this point. And so we knew that eventually this would be something that at least bars and restaurants would need. Uh, but we're very pleasantly surprised to find out that they took off in the first year that we released them. And we made and sold 30,000 bottles in our first year. Wow. Uh, and we'll do double that this year. And again, that's just two people physically making and selling and shipping and marketing <laughs> and social media and recipe development and we don't have anybody we 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 work with carly's stepdad who works 10 hours a week now and he just started you know six six months ago so in that first year we were literally just keeping up with demand can i explain it not really um there's obviously plenty of people at home that don't that want to use bitters and don't want to use alcoholic bitters that's part of it i think part of it is that they're great bitters on their own they're they're a, a wonderful handmade product made with intention and love and they taste great on their own independent of their alcohol status and people like you know buying and supporting from small brands and and small stories that they can get behind and so i think all those things together kind of worked in our favor to support us through that first and and into our second year uh and, and have allowed us to both do this full time but that was definitely a gamble that was a risk we had no idea I, my plan was to make five gallon batches at first, uh-huh. one five gallon batch of each flavor, which as I know now would have sold out in the first day. And then we would have been sold out for two months. Um, so we, we went from thinking of five gallon batches to doing eight fifty five gallon drums instead. Uh, and obviously it's a good thing that we did. Um, but no, things just kind of worked out really well. Yeah. I'm thinking, Okay, the 55 gallon drum, like how many, how many of the one ounce bottles is that? <laughs> uh, 4,000. Really? 4,000? Yeah, we could get 4,000 bottles out of a, out of a drum. It's about a thousand four ounce bottles, a thousand full size bottles out of a, out of a drum. Okay. And um, you're going to sell 60,000? Yeah, this year. Wow. Great. Yeah. Congratulations. That's so, yeah, good. That's so awesome. <laughs> that's so good to hear. 
it's pretty wild. It was it was definitely surprising. Um, and now we're just at, bursting at the seams and, and ready to move into a larger space. We're in about 400 square feet right now, and we're moving into a 3,000 square foot space uh, next door within the next few months. Um, okay. And we'll finally be able to hire some employees and add more tanks and a full bottling line and, and really ramp up production. Wow. That's so awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear. It's a lot of fun. I I do think it's an interesting time because I do think a lot of people for whatever, you know, there's, like you said, there's many reasons to maybe curb drinking or not. But I think a lot we've seen over the last few years, like more people kind of just wanting to be more mindful maybe or whatever. But there's also, I feel like in the last, especially the last six months, like classic cocktails, prohibition cocktails, like those are making a bit of a resurgence. So I feel like this is just such an interesting time for, for the product that you guys made. It's cool. There's a bunch of really cool aspects to, you know, kind of the, the, the emergence of non-alcoholic spirits over the last few years. So the, the nineties and the two thousands were, are referred to as the cocktail Renaissance. And we went from kind of a, a, so, okay, let's go back real quick. We'll do a, a, a very quick history lesson. 1880s, 1870s to just before Prohibition was the, the golden age of, of cocktails. And that's where all of the classic cocktails that we know of now, you know, Manhattan, Sazerac's, all, you know, all, all the great drinks, most of them kind of emerged around that time. And then we outlawed drinking um, and lost basically all of it and and forgot everything um, and started drinking. We think of Prohibition as like this time where we were making great cocktails. Pre-Prohibition was great cocktails. Prohibition was crap. Prohibition was we were drinking bathtub gin and mm-hmm. and, cut, and it was ever super dangerous and everything was terrible. Um, and then we got out of Prohibition and kind of forgot everything that we had done. And so there was a period in the you know kind of 40s and 50s where like the drinking culture was not good. Um, and it was more about just kind of getting drunk and it wasn't about the flavor anymore. And then we went into like the seventies and eighties, early nineties were like, you know, cosmos and new, you know, new creations, new modern drinks, but we didn't really go back to the classics of like the old fashioned, the Manhattan kind of resurrecting, bringing back the, the really great cocktails from that time period until the nineties and two thousands. And there was kind of, there was a handful of bartenders that, that got interested in it and wanted to go back to making essentially great drinks. And, and a big part of it was like using fresh citrus again, as opposed to store-bought sour mix and getting away from, you know, the, the Mai Tai that was just like a pineapple juice and orange juice and grenadine and whatnot. Like that's not a Mai Tai. Like there's a very classic Mai Tai recipe. And we went, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s into basically just a ton of, you know, confectionery sugar flavors and store-bought juices. And we had this period of about 20 years in the 90s and 2000s where we went back to the base and we went kind of back to the roots of, of making great cocktails. So there was this huge resurgence in and an excitement for these drinks and for, you know, kind of cocktail culture. Mm-hmm. But non-drinkers were largely left out of it. You know, that wasn't an emphasis of that time period. And so anybody now that 
you know, either has never drank or quit drinking, we're kind of left out of it. And especially for people that don't drink at all and have never drank, they've never got to enjoy, you know, the, the show of sitting in a bar and having a bartender make you a great drink. They've never got to experience bar culture. And now you can, now you can go to a bar and you can order a drink and you can watch the show. You can watch the bartenders interact. You can talk to the people next to you. You know, you can watch the dance of the restaurant and you just, you didn't really get that as a, as a non-drinker, you were confined to, you know, your soda and iced tea and lemonade at home or, you know, at a restaurant table or you're like your sad duels or whatever it was. Um, but we, we get to welcome people back into that culture again now, which is pretty cool. And it's, it's fun to see, you know, kind of where this is going to go and, and where the non-alc market is going to, what it's going to develop into. Um, but where it's at right now is really fun. So Holly put something on here about a book you're writing. I am. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I don't know how far away it is. It's been an idea for a few years and I've been working on it actively now for the last year. But it is a non-alcoholic spirit and cocktail book. Um, it's not a branded all the bitter sales tool. It's not an all the bitter recipe book. It uses our bitters because cocktails use bitters. Um, but the idea is to pull, it's about 20 different spirits from across different brands, about 125 recipes that focus solely on those spirits really to give people at home uh, a super straightforward guide into making the most out of your non-alcoholic bar. You know, people will buy a bottle of whiskey and take a sip right out of the bottle and then spit it out and pour it down the drain because it doesn't taste like whiskey. It's not 40% alcohol whiskey. It, it can't be. But it does work well when you make a proper cocktail with it. You know, you, you can't drink it neat, but in a whiskey sour, it works great. You know, combined with the right ingredients, it works great. And combined with other spirits, it works really well. So I, I've kind of seen an opportunity because most brands are focusing on their portfolio. You know, their 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 recipes call for their three different spirits that they make. This is really, I feel like, the opportunity to say, you know, here's a fully stocked bar. Here's 20 spirits that could theoretically be behind your bar. How can you put those together in the same way that you would put together an alcoholic bar and, and the, 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 the thousands of different cocktails that you could make with a fully stocked alcoholic bar and common bar ingredients. So things like grenadine and orgeat and ginger syrup, things that you might find behind your bar already. Or if not, you can certainly very easily buy and have here the next day on Amazon, as opposed to which is most non-alcoholic cocktail books or recipes tend to rely on, you know, making a syrup or a shrub or an extract or a tincture or, you know, any number of kind of different preps that you have to do um, or some kind of, you know, uh, clarification or all these techniques that, that make non-alcoholic cocktails better because those recipes don't necessarily rely on these spirits, which are great ingredients. They've done half the job for you. They've already created that complex flavor. You don't need to recreate it with, you know, four different syrups. Like you can just use Gia or Pathfinder or any of these, you know, Tennyson, any of these really wonderful spirits that have already been created. So once you stock your bar, 
put together a couple different syrups that you can buy, you'll find that you can make, you know, 25, 30 recipes from this book. And the further you go down and the more you, you know, you look at a recipe and you go, oh, I've got this spirit, but I'm missing this one. Maybe I'll pick up that spirit. Now you can make that cocktail. Then you look up the new spirit you just bought and you go, oh, I can make these 10 cocktails with that, but I'm missing this one spirit to make this cocktail. And so then you go and you go down that rabbit hole. Um, and so that's kind of the idea and, and, and the hope is that it, it helps people get the most out of their current bar and feel comfortable exploring more options, which is tough because these things cost 30 to $40. They're hard to explore when you're not sure if you're going to like it or not, or you're not sure how to use it. Um, so both for home bartenders, but then also for bartenders and, and restaurants to be able to put together programs where they just might not have the time to explore all these different spirits uh, to figure out how to use them most effectively. You know, I, I really want to be able to offer a, a, a roadmap for them to be able to effectively and very quickly put together a program for their bar. That's cool. That's I really cool. Like, like a <laughs> non-dairy version of that. <laughs> I have a dairy allergy. And so like, you know, you're talking about how non-alcoholic items are more expensive because they're more expensive to, to produce. And it's the same thing with like non-dairy alternatives. You know, I, have to, I pay like basically double the price for my fake cheese and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but whenever it comes to like recipes, I just have to make it up. Like, I'm like, okay, like, let's try this one and see if that works as a good substitute. Yeah. I don't make a non-dairy cookbook. Well, <laughs> that's yeah. a good idea. <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, add your uh, book writing to your your list of things you need to do, I guess. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't have enough. Uh, <laughs> well, we're coming close to the hour. I would love to hear about the different uh, nonprofits that y'all support. Yeah, we so there, there's there's two. I mean, there's a number of different nonprofits, but there's kind of two causes that we support. And the first is um one percent for the planet, which is just is an organization that uh, you you commit to uh, giving back one percent of your total sales to uh, approved environmental organizations. Uh, we so far and and probably you know for the foreseeable future we'll change this up a little bit I'm sure, but we donate to an organization called Trees for Change uh, that plants trees it more much more than planting trees they work directly with small farmers in africa in a few different um, countries in africa that so they they help them revitalize their farms by doing a couple different things by planting a uh a, a, a forest wall essentially around their farm um, and, and kind of filling their farm with trees, both productive trees that grow fruit that help then feed the farmers and the families and they can sell the rest of the fruit and non-productive trees um, that help, you know, fix nitrogen to the soil and help revitalize the, you know, the, the, the biome of their farm. Um, and then, of course, you know, help with carbon dioxide emissions and, yeah. and oxygen and, and do all the things that trees do. Um, you know, so every t 25 cents or so that we donate plants a tree, every bottle that you buy from us plants one tree, I think yeah, is how think it breaks down. Good. 
but it's much more than that because they're 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 working directly with farmers and they work with them for like four years they basically they partner up with these farms and, and work with them for a period of time to really get them kind of back on their feet and to get them to be self-sufficient where they might not be right now. So so far more encompassing than just trees. But very cool. I thought that was a really neat idea that it hits, you know, so many, so many points. Things that are great, obviously just for the earth and the environment in general, um, but that also directly help small farmers. The other is a, a program um, that we call Two for Todd. Um, Todd is my uh, wife Carly's dad who passed away uh, a few years ago and suffered from addiction problems and, and never got the help that he that he needed. And so we donate 2% of our annual sales to recovery organizations, whether it be, uh, you know, kind of general, um, you know, general outreach, you know, kind of kind of more you know, big picture substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we donate to an organization called Ben's Friends, which is essentially AA for restaurant workers. Okay. It's not AA, um, but it's it's for it's it's structured very in a very similar fashion. Uh, where you know it's a twelve step program. You get a sponsor. You you know you go to weekly or daily meetings or whatever you want. You share. Um, but is geared specifically towards people who work in restaurants, which is super cool for a lot of reasons. Restaurant workers, food workers are disproportionately affected by alcohol and substance abuse. Um, it's, it's depending on, you know, what, you know, kind of numbers you're looking at one of, if not the leading profession for substance use and, and alcohol use disorders. For, that's a whole other conversation. For any any number of reasons, it, it is, and it can be tough to go into AA or any other program of recovery and say I'm a bartender or even I work in a kitchen, because yeah. depending on who you're talking to, the first thing they might say is find a new job, mm -hmm. and that's not an option for a lot of like I love working in I don't you know not anymore, but like I wouldn't give up working in restaurants just for that. Like I I don't accept that. That's not okay. I love working in restaurants. I understand that there's alcohol abuse, you know, prevalent there, but I'm not going to give up the career that I love. So Ben's Friends is a way to connect with other people that work in restaurants and to, to first of all, not be told, go quit your job, uh, but to really relate directly to your peers that are, are going through the exact same thing in the exact same environment and to get the same help that you would get in a program like AA, but from people that understand exactly where you're coming from. Um, so that's really cool and, and, and really important to us. We, we donate currently right now to a, a local organization uh, in Chico that helps directly rehabilitate um, people who are, are suffering from uh, alcohol use disorder or are homeless partially due to alcohol use and are always looking for other charities that, that do kind of direct helping where the money goes directly to, to putting somebody in a, in a bed and getting them treatment. Yeah, that's huge. That, that's awesome that you are doing that. My brother is a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober for, I want to say he just posted on Facebook. It was 10 years at this point. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And he's a chef at a restaurant, you know, yeah. um, uh, that's not actually where it got started, but <laughs> you know, he is in the restaurant industry and yeah, the way he got sober was a free rehab center and a 
I mean, we're from Louisiana, so I want to say it was like in North Louisiana and Monroe, maybe. But if it wouldn't have been free, like, you know, I, we don't come from money. So he definitely couldn't have afforded to go there. Yeah. You know, so it's like that's that's very cool. That's And that's that's really where that came from for us was we yeah. we both, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough to have the the means and the, and the help. We couldn't have done it ourselves. We had help from our parents. Uh, we had a five month old and we didn't have the money to do it ourselves. Um, but we also absolutely there's zero percent chance that either one of us would have gotten sober if we didn't go to rehab. Yeah. And we, we were, you know, checked into individually rehab for, you know, three to four weeks. Um, and then, you know, figured out programs after that, but we couldn't have done it without that. And, and we couldn't have paid for it ourselves. Yeah. We couldn't have gotten a babysitter for our toddler for not toddler who's a newborn for a month. You know what I mean? Like we were very fortunate to have that, but not everybody does. So if, if we're able to give back, you know, some of the, the, the money that we make selling bitters, to help people find that help, then that seems like you can't not do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that wasn't even a choice. That was like, yeah, of course we're going to give give that back to do that. Yeah. What what a full circle! I feel like this whole your business, your situation, I feel like it's just so kismet. Like that's why it's working. I feel like this is the universe. You selling sixty thousand bottles is the universe rewarding you for everything is just clicking. I love it. Yeah, I don't know what we're being rewarded for exactly, <laughs> but but you're right. <laughs> you're 100 percent right. Um, you know, it, it there's like this is if you told me 10 years ago, even five years ago, that I would be making alcohol free cocktail bitters right now, I would have told you you were nuts. Um, but now I I'm, I look around and I'm like, oh yeah, obviously, like this is of course what we're supposed to be doing, right? There's nothing else that we could do at this point in time. But I don't know. We didn't do anything good enough to be rewarded. So I think we just got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we've kept you for an hour. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about? No. Um, um, sorry, I talked so much. Please, no. It's the entire time. So you're good. Where can people find all the bitter? Uh, the easiest place is our website, allthebitter.com. Uh, we are on Instagram at all the bitter and Facebook at all the bitter. Uh, but we do most of our, our sharing. Uh, we share a lot of behind the scenes, uh, stuff that's really fun on our Instagram account. We're in a, a if you just, you know, you search for all the bitter, you know, you'll, you'll find a ton of different retailers that carry us, but the okay. easiest way is our website. Cool. I'm so excited for the new flavors. I was thinking like the fig and walnut. I was like, I'm going to put that in my espresso. Like I was thinking all I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> the chocolate is really good in coffee and espresso. Yeah. Really. The mol chocolate mole. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I'm excited. And red wine. That's another one where it really works well in red wine. Okay. Is it dairy free? Uh, yes. Yeah. We just use raw cocoa nibs. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Cool. I'm excited too. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. I mean, what a powerful conversation. I mean, we're honored that you gave us an hour of your time. I know you're yes, busy. Thank you. No, thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Cool. Well, we'll keep up with you. I'm excited to see where this goes. I know that you have a bright future ahead of you. Thank you very much. I appreciate cool. it. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Holly, where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram and Twitter at OrangeJulia7. 
also on thebitterlemon.com and on Etsy, Bitter Lemon Digital. And Derek, where can people find you? So I am on Instagram with my personal account at yoga with Derek, and that's D-E-R-E-K, spelled the correct way. And on Instagram for Yoga for All Humans, it is at Yoga for All Humans on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, don't judge my TikTok game. I'm still learning. On LinkedIn, you can sync up with me, Derek Hagler, on there. And Yoga for All Humans has its own LinkedIn account as well. And of course, yogaforallhumans.com is the studio's website. Small Business Happy Hour has its own Instagram account at Small Business Happy Hour, or you can email us at smallbusinesshappyhour at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers. See you next Tuesday. Tuesday.